Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you still have one of these ESV scripture journals that we gave at the very beginning of the series, we're on page 18. Thank you. Now, I have to say on the front end, uh, this kind of feels like a no-win message. (laughs) If you're a, a woman in the room, you might understandably be thinking, okay, here we go. Brace myself. Back to the 1950s? What's going on here? And you might feel that way because you've heard messages like this or or texts, I would say, mistaught, misinterpreted in some ways that um, have been harmful. And maybe you even feel like you've been the victim of harm. Uh, This this idea that this text might be misused to reinforce uh, a male domination that can lead to all kinds of evil. At the same time, some men in the room are thinking, uh, here we go, I'm about to take a verbal pounding because here's why. The trend in more recent years is for teachers like me to, to try so hard to overcompensate so the women don't feel uncomfortable that oftentimes the way it comes out is we just, we treat men like idiots, you know, like these big buffoon gorillas that are insensitive and clueless. And I think some of it tries to come out as humor and tries to maybe um, win over the, the women and, and build rapport with the women by kind of poking fun at the men, you know, kind of nudge, nudge. And, and uh, we're not going to do that today either. So in a way, I could look at this as a no-win message, but the good news for me is I'm not here to win anything. Amen. I'm here to teach the Word of God, this text that, that God has brought us to this morning, and I'm here to do it as faithfully as I know how, as skillfully as I know how, and let the Spirit do His work through it. We really believe what we say at the end of our scripture reading every week. This is the living word of God for us today. And it's the living word of God because the spirit who is alive is the the author of the text and the spirit is alive is is the one who re-speaks the text when it is read and when it is taught even today. And it's the spirit, the same author of the text that is in you if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. That will open your eyes to see and open your ears to hear if you actually listen to what Paul is saying in this text. And here's what that means. It means placing Paul in his cultural context and paying attention to his words. He's not reinforcing male-dominated power over women, nor is he berating men or husbands or either gender for that matter for their failures. Paul is treating both genders with respect as human beings made in the image of God. And he's calling both genders to something far more beautiful and visionary than what any of us are fully experiencing. Now, I'm going to spend more time this morning on context than I typically do. Here's the reason why. If you don't have some context, biblical context, cultural context, and I'd even say personal context, which I'll explain that last category. If you don't have a lot of context, you won't be able to hear this text 
you won't be able to hear it well. So I want to spend some time on some context. Biblical context first and foremost. Colossians chapter three, which is the chapter that this text is in. It's one of the most glorious expositions of the new life in all of scripture. We've been talking about this. Paul is saying, put off the old self, put on the new self. He's describing an old humanity and a new humanity. And he says, if you're in Christ, in other words, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer who you were, you're something new. You're not part of the old humanity, you're part of the new humanity. You have a new identity and therefore you have new clothing to wear. It's the text from two weeks ago. It says, put on the clothing of Jesus the clothing of your new humanity, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus has remade you and transformed you to fit the clothing so you can look like Jesus and you can act like Jesus and carry the scent, the aroma of Christ in the clothing that you wear, so to speak. He's using that metaphor. Then last week, Paul says, all right, the text that Lloyd taught last week, what does it look like to wear your new clothes in your church family? And Lloyd did a marvelous job. If you missed that message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. This week, he moves past the church family to your literal family, husbands, wives, children, parents. He's going to ask, this, ask and answer this question. What does it look like to wear the, the clothing of the new humanity, your resurrected self at home? What does that look like? Now, I want to move from biblical context to cultural context. And the way that I want to introduce to you to what was going on in the family structure in Roman times is to show you a little bit of a video clip. This comes from, this is the work of the Bible Project team. If you've never discovered them, you're in for a treat. They, they do animated videos about um, themes and keywords and theology and books of the Bible. They've got, I don't know, hundreds of them on their website, bibleproject.com. This is one they did on Colossians. And I'm not going to show you the whole thing, just a one-minute excerpt. The whole thing's about eight minutes. They summarize all of Colossians in eight minutes. It is fantastic. This one section is on our text this morning, and it's going to put this text in the cultural context of the Roman household in the day Paul was writing. Let's take a look. Might look like in a first century. Paul then gets really practical and he shows the Colossians what this new humanity might look like in a first century Roman household, which was a highly authoritarian institution where the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife and children and slaves. Not so in a Christian household. Here, the risen Jesus is the true Lord. And so, in the Lord, the wife allows her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. In a home where Jesus is Lord, children are not objects, but are called to maturity and to respect. And parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. Christians who are slaves are to honor their human masters precisely because they're not the real master. Jesus is. And Christians who have slaves are to understand that this slave is not their property, but rather a fellow member of Jesus's body to be honored and embraced in love. And Paul's walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure out Right, the exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed almost beyond the point of recognition for any Roman living in Colossae. All right, we're going to pause it right there, but we're going to leave that screenshot 
up there because I want to interact with it. This is so helpful and so right on target. It is not an overstatement to say in the Roman culture, the patriarch held the power of life and death. Literally, he was the only one in that culture that was considered a, a, a legal human being. He could do whatever he wanted to do in the context of that home. Think about how different it is when Jesus is the patriarch. Jesus is the Lord of the house. It works entirely different. Now, this was incredibly countercultural in Paul's day. It was, it, they would have read it in that day and it would have been very progressive. So we read it in our day, it sounds very conservative. In their day, it would have been very progressive. What do you mean there are expectations on the father to sacrifice himself and love his family? No, there should only be expectations on the wives and the children. What do you mean the fathers should not provoke their children? How else are you gonna keep them in line, you see? It, it was such a male-dominated patriarchal culture that this text seemed very, very progressive. Isn't it interesting how things Things have changed and it sounds so conservative to our ear. Here's what I want to say about this. Christianity is, is neither uh, left nor right. It's from above. To be the body of Christ means to give the world a glimpse of God's kingdom. God's kingdom's not right wing, it's not left wing. God's kingdom is from a whole nother place. It's from above and it comes in, sits down on our culture and we have to wrestle through what it looks like for us to faithfully live out scripture in our day and age. I will tell you a couple of things. It's gonna look different than the culture around us, always. And that was true in Paul's day and that's gonna be true in our day as well. Now, what we're digging into this morning is a glimpse of new creation, a glimpse of how a family unit is called to embody resurrection life in the home. And this is something that our world doesn't know what to do with. It doesn't know what to do with it. Um, 2,000 years ago, it doesn't know what to do with it today. It looks very different, the re response and reaction. But in both cases, um, it's not quite sure how to handle it, which is what makes it beautiful. Now, we've had Two places of context. You can go ahead and remove that from the screen if you would. Biblical context, cultural context. I want to talk about personal context. Here's what I mean by that. I want you just to hopefully agree with me. I don't, I don't think it'll be any trouble to agree with me that family life is hard. It's not all hard. There's joy in it. But it's hard to have a, mar a good marriage that honors God. It's hard to be a good dad and mom. It's hard even to be a child in a household. And you think it gets better when you grow up and you know, when you're, you're older, but then there's, there's always issues in families. That's why there's a joke about Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. Everybody's like, well, good luck surviving the family. You know, that's the shame that we say it that way, but there's some truth. We all feel some tension in our families. Why is that? I want to take you back to what Paul has said about the old self and the new self. And some of this is a review from two weeks ago, this diagram, but some of it is new. Our old self is rooted in an old identity. And as this old identity plays out, it creates all kind of havoc in the family. What is our old identity? In our old identity, we feel insecure. In our old identity, we feel inadequate. And in our old identity, we fear or we feel fearful insecure, inadequate, fearful. I'm going to put a heart around that just to represent, that's kind of your core self in Adam. 
in your flesh, in your humanity, all of us as human beings, you're kind of born into this world with a sense of insecurity, inadequacy, and fear. Now, it played out with Adam and Eve. The moment they sinned, they felt shame in their nakedness. They felt insecure. Therefore, they felt inadequate in and of their own selves. So they had to grab onto leaves and, and things to, to, to put over them, to cover themselves. They felt fear. They hid from God. All this played out immediately, and it played out in their own relationship. What happened with Adam and Eve? Well, they immediately began to try to control the situation. They controlled, they, they withdrew, they literally hid from God and from, another, from one another so we can control each other. When we feel insecure, we're gonna try to control. When we feel inadequate, we're gonna withdraw. Um, we fight, they fought. Finally, we can blame, they blame. These are the behaviors that the identity gives birth to. Broken identity gives birth to broken behaviors. And I'm gonna draw these fractured marks around the heart to represent this is broken identity. Gives birth to broken behaviors. Uh, Sandra Richter was, uh, she's an Old Testament scholar uh, still living today. She wrote a wonderful book on the Old Testament called The Epic of Eden. And in this book, she talks briefly about the, the effect of the fall on human relationships beginning with the marriage, the first human relationship, marriage. Here's what she writes. This is so helpful. Whereas Adam and Eve's relationship had been all that they could need or want in Eden, with the fall, this ideal partnership was transformed, listen to this phrase, into the competitive grappling of two hungry souls. If you've been married very long, you've experienced the competitive grappling of two hungry souls. I, I have my needs and wants. She has her needs and wants. She doesn't always meet my needs and wants. I don't always meet her needs and wants. And we grapple with one another. She goes on to say this. A relationship that should have been characterized by mutual self-sacrifice, productivity, and joy will create instead the deepest of frustration and pain. There is not a marriage on this planet that has not felt the aftershock of this curse. I would say, and there's not a family on this planet, of course, that has not also felt that because every family begins with some kind of union, some kind of union between a man and a woman. The competitive grappling of hungry souls is played out in all of our families. Think about the way it played out in the first family. Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel, Wow, you talk about competitive grappling, two hungry souls led to devastating effects. In fact, one of sin's first and most horrible effects was to wreck the family. Still true to this day. Broken identity gives birth to broken behavior, control, withdrawal, fight, blame, and broken identity results in brokenness all around. So we have over here now on this side of the, the identity, we have deception, why do we lie to each other? Why do we withhold things from each other? Because we're insecure. If they only knew, if they found out, they wouldn't want me anymore, etc. It leads to disunity. And finally, it always leads to some form of separation, either emotional, spiritual, sometimes legal, sometimes physical. It is always the end result of this broken identity leading to broken behavior, brokenness all around us. We're all too familiar with these things. The good news, as we've talked about, is Colossians reminds us that there's hope for transformed lives and therefore there's hope for transformed families. Guys, I want you to hear me say that again. 
there is hope for transformed families. It is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to explain why that is. So this arrow cannot do anything. In fact, there's no transformation apart from the gospel of Jesus. And the reason for that is you can't change by only focusing on external behavior. You have to go to the root problem, which is broken identity, broken selves, so to speak. So here's what the new self is governed by a new identity. And we talked about this two weeks ago. I want to use these same words. They come straight from Colossians 3.12. In Christ, we are chosen. In Christ, we are holy. And in Christ, we are loved. This is your new identity. In Jesus, new creation, resurrected. There's a part of you that died to your old self and has been raised to newness of life. And Paul's saying, don't forget who you are. You are chosen. You are holy. You are loved. Because it's only out of this new identity that you can begin to live out new behaviors. So now we get to our text. So when Paul says, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Good luck doing that, except from a new place. <laughs> Confidence in your gospel identity in Jesus Christ, chosen, holy, love. Says, husbands, love your wives. Good luck doing that, husbands, apart from your new identity. Says, children, obey your parents. Same thing. That's not going to come from your flesh. It's got to come from a new place. And then, of course, the, the last phrase here, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The key idea in this command is to encourage, not discourage your children. Submit, love, obey, encourage. These are new behaviors within a family that come out of a new identity. I'm going to unpack each of those one by one. Yes, we're going to talk about submit. You know, yes, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about all of them. But first, let me just remind you who you are. You are wholly chosen in love. To be chosen means you didn't choose God. He came to you. There was nothing you thought or did or achieved that made you worthy of his love. He loves you because you are his. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You bring nothing to the table except your own neediness. That's as it should be. It's all of grace. And if you forget that, you will be living from an old identity. You have to remember, I bring nothing to the table except my own neediness, and yet I was chosen. Wow, that's remarkable. It's all Christ. You are holy. Here's why you need to know you're holy to, to live out in, in the, the, the new identity in your family. Holy does not mean you're a perfect husband. You can't be. Holy does not mean you're a perfect wife or a perfect child or a perfect parent. We're all far from that. Holy means you're covered with the perfection of Jesus over you. Holy means you've been set apart for sacred use. That's what the word literally means. You and therefore your family have been set apart. If you are a believer, your family that you belong to has been set apart, has been marked for sacred use. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe there's something significant and special that God is calling you to? Not because of your own perfection or your goodness or your ability to be a great husband or wife, but because Jesus' perfection has been placed on you in Christ and you've been set apart because of that. Finally, you're loved. The simplest, but maybe the most difficult of all to believe. I want to connect some dots here with how, why it matters in your family to believe that you're loved by God. Deeply believing you're loved by your creator will utterly transform you. It will utterly transform you. Number one, because you're no longer desperate for your kids to be the ones that are up loving you and worshiping you and saying, you're so great, dad. You're so great, mom. You're not dependent on that anymore. You're not dependent on your spouse to be the one that says, you're the greatest husband that I can ever imagine. I love being with you. I desire to be with you. Or your husband saying, you're the greatest, most beautiful thing God's gift to creation. You're not dependent on those things for your own sense of self, you see. Because you're rooted in your identity in Jesus Christ, you are loved. 1 John 4, 18 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Guys, I don't care how good your marriage is or isn't, you will not find perfect love apart from Christ. You won't find it. And when you know perfect love, it chases away your fear. Your fear of things falling apart, your fear of not being good enough, your fear of what if I can't, what if she doesn't, what if he doesn't, it chases away all that fear, you see. That's what perfect love does. And when you can live without fear, you will live as a completely different person. What's the worst thing that could happen? Our family falls apart and yet I'm still deeply loved and so are they in Christ. What's the worst that could happen? We get sick and we die. Yet we're still secure in the love of Jesus Christ and look forward to an existence far beyond what we have here. Do you see? Do you see? Do you believe? You are chosen. You are holy. You are loved. Now, we get to our text, and hopefully we hear it with new ears, because this text is not for unconverted people. It makes no sense to try to submit and love and obey and encourage in this sense if you've not been transformed from the inside out and have been secure in your new identity in Jesus. Let's take these first two together because they're meant to go together. The New Testament never separates them. Wives, submit to your husbands, this is verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A few things to point out about Paul's instructions here. First, this is all built on the foundation of complete equality and oneness in Christ. Galatians 3.28, Paul, same author, writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. See how he just leveled the playing field completely? In a massively radical way, he just leveled the playing field. So number one, all of this, all of these instructions are built on the foundation of complete equality and oneness in Christ. If you don't get that, you can't hear what comes after. Second, 
the word submit, which is the, the first verb given, the first command given, and it's addressed to wives. The word submit is in the middle voice. Here's what that means grammatically. It implies a voluntary submission, not a forced submission. A good way to translate this text would be wives, choose to submit yourselves to your husbands. That was a radical use of that verb in Paul's context. In that context, there's no choice. Wives don't choose to submit. Wives must submit. By the way, Paul gets blamed all the time of commanding wives to obey their husbands. The Bible never says, wives, obey your husbands. It never does. It says, wives, choose to submit. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Uh, David Garland wrote a helpful commentary on Colossians, and he put it this way. Paul's verb choice makes the wife's submission her willing choice, not some universal law that ordains masculine dominance. Now, many of you in the room are writers. You're songwriters, you're, you're book writers, you're blog writers, you're writers of all different kinds. You know that word choice matters. The verb you choose, the tense you put it in, in this case, even the, the, the voice that Paul chose was intentional. We don't want to miss this. The word submits in the middle voice implying a voluntary submission. Remember, if Jesus is Lord of the home, the wife obeys him. So does the husband. And Jesus' command of the wives or his ask of us, if you're a wife in this room, is submit yourselves to your husbands. And I know some of you feel so much tension in that. But, but notice... Well, I'm getting ahead. Let me go to the third point because this is what I want you to notice. Third, this is most important. The family structure is placed in the context of an overarching allegiance to Jesus. The family structure is placed in the context of an overarching allegiance to Jesus. I want you to put a box around the word Lord in verse 18. You know, we've been tracking through, um, every time we've come to a direct reference of Jesus, we've been putting a box around it. Put, put that in verse 18, a box around Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Then again in verse 20, it's there as well. Children, obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Notice, wives, it does not say submit to your husbands because they deserve it. <laughs> submit to your husbands because it's fitting with their stature and honor and dignity and role. It doesn't say any of that. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Family structure is placed in the context of an overarching allegiance to Christ. Jesus is the Lord of the house. He's the true patriarch, so to speak. All the parties are under his protection under his care, under his love, under his authority. Every member of the family is called to submit to Jesus, every one of us. So understanding this frees up members of a household to exercise their freedom and exercise their responsibility under a higher order. Paul keeps going back to this because it really matters. Now, I know this doesn't relieve all the tension, and I'm not trying to relieve all the tension. So let's talk about how the leadership of Jesus plays out through distinct roles in the home. Did you hear the way I phrased that? Let's talk about how the leadership of Jesus plays out through distinct roles in the home. This is what Paul is teaching. And I know this is where the tension is because that's just the real issue. But some of you are like, wow. If they're all equal, why are there distinct roles? The Bible teaches equality and distinctiveness in the way that the leadership is played out and the way that the family roles are played out. Let me give you a bit of an illustration and analogy. I know no illustration is perfect. I know every analogy breaks down. But 
this one has been helpful for me, learning how to live out my role as a husband. And, and Jody and I have talked about this before. Years ago, when we were first married, maybe a year or two into our marriage, um, I gave Jody a gift that I soon came to regret afterward. And it was ballroom dancing lessons. You'll see why I regretted this. Um, she'd been asking for a long time, and I'd been putting it off because uh, let's just say that whatever the opposite of a dancer is, that's what I am. And she's she grew up clogging. You know, she's big into clogging. She's some other kind of dancing, and so she was all all in on this. And uh, I said, "Honey, I'm going to be bad." And she says, "It doesn't matter." And but it did matter right here, right? <laughs> so we go to the ballroom dancing, and the first few lessons were kind of an unmitigated disaster. And the reason was I was so insecure. And I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the man, in the ballroom dancing, the man's supposed to lead. And, and the female partner's supposed to follow the man's lead. Well, it's pretty bad when your, your wife knows all the steps and you know nothing and you're clumsy on your feet. So here's what would happen was we would go, you know, she would go and she would kind of lead me because I'm supposed to be leading, but I wasn't leading. And I got all grumpy about it. And I was sure in my head that she was looking around at all those other men thinking, I wish that I was with him or him or him. I wish, I, this is in my head, right? I wish I was with anybody other than Rob. She never thought that. But in my mind, she did. Why? Because I'm living out of my old identity. I'm insecure. I feel inadequate and I have fear. Now, so what that caused me to do was withdraw. <laughs> That's my personality. First and foremost, I try to withdraw. So it was like 10 minutes till the thing's over and I'm like, yeah, you know, this has been, this has been good, but uh, maybe we should call it an early night. And I saw my beautiful wife wilt. I realized that this was a gift that I had given to her and I was ruining it for her. Now, ballroom dancing doesn't work when the male refuses to lead and the female keeps trying to lead. Ballroom dancing doesn't work when there's a struggle for control. It surely doesn't work when one of the partners withdraws where they fight, blame. The design of the dance requires the man to take the lead, but his purpose, guys, listen to this. His purpose is not to dominate his partner. His purpose is not to show off. His purpose is to create something beautiful together. Particularly if you know anything about ballroom dancing, which I do now. The male partner's true purpose is to draw the audience's attention to the female. She's the one that wears the bright colored costume and all the flourish. She's the one that spins around. He usually wears a dark color and, and sort of disappears into the background. He's got an important job, but his, his job is to draw the attention to her. And together they create something beautiful and something graceful. A marriage relationship is like a dance designed by God. You know, I would have rather Jody lead me in that dance, but guess what? That's not the way the dance was designed. A marriage relationship is like a dance designed by God in which a husband and wife learn to take steps together with great grace through their distinct but equally valuable roles. Together they put on display the glory of God. Now, some of you are thinking, but that, that's not working in my marriage because my, my spouse won't do the dance. They can't do the dance. Let me just take a moment to say, that's really hard. And that's not as it should be. It might be your reality. If that's your reality, I want to encourage you, husbands and wives, either one, throw yourself on the grace of Christ. 
Throw yourself on the leadership of Christ. Trust the Holy Spirit that is in you to guide you and lead you on what steps you should take. It is hard. It is hard. I will pray for you in that. I would like, however, to address husbands and wives separately for just a moment, if you'll allow me to. Start with husbands. One thing that's probably true about your wife is she would love for you to lead the dance, but it can't be about you. It can't be about you controlling things, but nor can it be about you and your insecurity withdrawing. It's not about you. It's about the pair. It's about the couple. It's about God's glory being shown on this dance floor. So husbands, here's what I think God might say to you based on this text, based on Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about the same things in more detail. Husbands, I think God might say this. I have joined you to a woman who is a precious soul to me. I'm calling you to love her unconditionally and sacrificially. I am asking you to lay down your life for her good and her safety and her flourishing. Will you entrust to me your own deepest needs, your deep desires, so you can be free to lay down yourself for her? Wives, if I could speak to you directly, and I know that may not be easy to hear, instructions on marriage coming from a man, and I understand this, but one thing I would say that's probably true about your husband, which is really hard for him to admit, is he feels completely inadequate to lead the dance. That is usually true, and he needs your help. He doesn't need you to take control and, and dominate and, and, and all that, but he needs your help. Here's what I think God might say to you, among other things, wives. He might say this. I've given your husband a job to do and he does not believe he can do it. Will you help him? Will you encourage his leadership by allowing yourself to be led? Will you help him believe that he can do this with my power and your help? Will you entrust to me, most important part, will you entrust to me your own deepest needs and desires so you can be free to come alongside in support and encouragement? Not hard for either. Not hard for either. The core, guys, that gets this down to is both men and women. Will you entrust to Jesus Christ your own needs and your own desires so that you can be freed up? Now, I've got two more to get to. I'm going to have to go quicker. These matter as well. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So here's another outward behavior that comes only from a new identity. Children, you are to obey. If I could address the children in the room directly, and let me, let me define children, not just the little kids. That's not what the actual word means here. Consider yourself in this category if you're still living at home and depending on your parents for provision, whether you're three or whether you're, I actually don't know how high to go. <laughs> But consider yourself in this category if you're under the roof and the authority of your parents. I want to say two things. First, don't miss the significance, children, of you being addressed directly in this text. Most governments and cultures throughout history would not address you as a distinct and unique and important individual. God does. The word of God addresses you directly. You are equal in value to all members of the household, including dad, including mom. You're equal in value. You matter. You have a role to play as well. And in the body of Christ, I'd say this, you bring gifts and contributions to the table just like your mom or dad do, just like I do or Lloyd does, just like our worship team does. 
We're all in this together. Now, with that said, I want to say number two to the children in the room. This season of your life is the opportunity to learn one of life's most important lessons. And that is how to live well under authority. And that is a hard lesson for all of us. You will never graduate from living under authority. It doesn't matter how old you get. It doesn't matter what kind of career you have, how much power you accumulate, how much money you make, how many businesses you own. You never graduate from that. You will always be living under authority in various places of your life. You'll have a government authority. You'll have bosses from time to time for sure. Uh, And always, always, always you're living under God's authority just like all of us are. But listen, this is far from a bad thing. You were not made to be out from under authority. God did not, did not design us to be autonomous creatures. He designed to us to live under authority. That's how we're wired. That's how we're designed. That's how you will flourish. If you could somehow achieve complete and total autonomy, you would destroy yourself and others around you because you'd make a terrible God. So would I. Children, becoming a fully flourishing human being does not mean finally getting out from under authority and doing whatever you want, but rather learning to express individuality and freedom, yes, but in the context under authority as God designed. Living well under authority is a lesson you must learn. You will learn it first and best under Christ's authority mediated through your parents in your home. The final instruction in our passage is for fathers, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I don't know why Paul directly chooses fathers. He could have addressed both parents. He mentions both parents in the previous verse, but he specifically chooses fathers in this. I know why for me. It's interesting, um, God ambushed me in the last couple of weeks because he knew I was going to be teaching this text and I had one of those really ugly parent moments with my kids. Um, I can't tell you the fullness of the story. It wouldn't be fair, but let's just say I was attempting to correct one of my daughters. But what was inside of me was insecurity, inadequacy, and fear because there had been some things going on that made me just feel like, is our family falling apart? Am I not bringing to the table what I need to bring to the table as a father of this home? And in that moment, out of my own insecurity and inadequacy, I got triggered. I won't blame her, but I got triggered. And what came out of me was brute force. What came out of me was an avalanche of words coming from anger coming from my own sense of inner failure and my fear of being out of control. And it just spilled out with sharpness. Now, most of the sharp edges in our own parenting flow out of our own inner sense of insecurity. Isn't that true? So I was able to go first and spend some time with God and say, God, I I bring this sense of fear and inadequacy and insecurity to you and, and I remember who I am chosen, holy, loved. Then I went to my daughter and I went to all the daughters because they all heard. And I just said, I'm sorry. 
and they graciously received. I know we've had those moments. All of us have. I tell you that story because it brings us back to what really matters. The grace of Jesus Christ. There might not be anything you do in life that'll throw you on the grace of Jesus Christ as much as parenting and marriage and being a child. There's nothing we do that throws us on the mercy of Jesus like that. So throw yourself on it. Confess, I've been a, not the father you've meant me to be, not the wife you've meant me to be, not the husband you've meant to be, not the child you've meant to be. Confess, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. Do you realize when you throw yourself on Jesus' mercy, he just smiles and says, yes, that's who I am. I am the Lord, the God, the gracious, the merciful. When you throw yourself on his grace, he says, yes, that's who I am. I love to be gracious. I love to be merciful. It is my core identity. You can bring it all day long. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let him reshape your identity. Let him remind you that it's not about your ability to be the wife, the husband, the child, the parent. It is all about his ability through you to reshape your identity and transform you from the inside out. Cling to this identity. You are chosen, holy. You are loved. Allow this to work its way into new behaviors that will define your family. Instead of deception, integrity, where we bring our full selves, the full weight of ourselves to our families instead of disunity unity where we move toward each other rather than away from each other and instead of separation peace which means wholeness completeness things and people knit together in shalom these are the outworkings of the new identity resurrected life playing out in a family our society does not know how to name it we do. It is Jesus Christ in our home. In a minute, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing the, the song about the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you why we've chosen this song. You cannot do this, any of it, apart from the empowerment of the Spirit of God. I love the fact that in various places in the New Testament, it calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Where is Christ's physical body? He's at the right hand of the Father, Scripture tells us. The Spirit of Christ is in you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ is in you. Put on the new clothing. Allow that not new identity to sort of eke its way out, to just seep its way out into your home life, into your relationship life. Depend on the spirit of Christ. Let me pray to that end. Father, you are in our homes by your spirit. The spirit of Christ that indwells everyone who's put their faith in Jesus. And, and I know there are people in this room that have put their faith in Jesus and, and yet it almost is like you wouldn't know it by the way they've been living out their role as a wife or a husband or a parent or a child. And Lord, I, I hope not, that you, you would just stir in them like you stirred in me a week or so ago, just this sense of, oh, I need Jesus. I need Jesus in me. And then would, would you give them immediately after a prayer of confession, would you give them the sense of, I am in you. This sense of you speaking to them their true identity that despite their failure, 
they are chosen. They are holy. They are loved because it's only from that new place that they'll begin to start living a new way. And God, I want to pray. You just put this on my heart right now in this moment. I want to pray particularly for wives and husbands in the room that just feel like they're at a place of desperation and they, they hear a message like this, say, oh, I wish. I wish my husband, I wish my wife would, would be different or I, I wish I still had my wife or my husband, or I wish I, I could be married or I, longing for things that aren't our. Would you meet those men and women right now? Would you allow the spirit of Christ in them to overtake them with grace and love? And may we all, as we sing this song together, be mindful that you are here. You are in us. You are on the move. And we want to yield space for you in our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen.